Hello and welcome to another episode of Canadians in Old Time Radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, founder and president of CATRA, the Canadian Old Time Radio Alliance. And if you go to our website, www.cotra.ca, C-O-T-R-A dot C-A, you'll find all sorts of interesting clips and uh, tidbits of, of information. For our Made in Canada segment this time, we're going to feature the King Ganim show. Unfortunately, we only have part of a show, but we have lots of his music. First, though, a little bit of biographical information. Amin Syed Ganim was born in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, on August 9, 1914. At first taught by old-time fiddlers in his hometown, Ganim began playing for dances by the age of nine and was on CHWC radio in Regina at 13. Later, his formal teachers were W. Knight Wilson, Jack Thornycroft, and Grigory Garbovitsky. His dark good looks came from his father, who was Syrian. His mother was English. His original name was Amin Ganim, but he found that the Arabic name Amin confused listeners, so he changed his name to King. He felt that there was a bit of kinship in his ancestry, because the nomadic Arab tribes were similar to the wandering cowboys that he paid tribute to in his music. With the Sons of the West, a country band he formed in 1942 in Edmonton, Ganim performed on CBC Radio's Alberta Ranch House, and together they won the 1950 World Open Western Band Competition in Vancouver. This led immediately to a recording contract with RCA Victor and Ganim's nickname, Canada's King of the Fiddle. Ganim and his band toured Canada, and after moving in 1952 to Toronto, they appeared at Casaloma and became regular performers on CBC TV's Holiday Ranch each Saturday night, beginning at 7.30 p.m. He starred each Tuesday and Thursday, beginning at 1.45 p.m., in a 15-minute CBC Trans-Canada Network radio show from 1954 to 1955, called The King Ganim Show, and he appeared from 1956 to 1959 on CBC TV's Country Hoedown with Gordy Tapp and a studio version of The Sons of the West, including Tommy Hunter. Ganim then starred in 1961 on CTV's The King Ganim Show, Though he moved to California in 1962, he returned frequently 
throughout the 1960s to perform in Canada. In 1954, a magazine article described his dark good looks, his Syrian background, and his flashing brown eyes. It said, King Ganem looks as if he'd be at home, dashing across the desert on an Arabian steed. But, says the he, the only plains he has ever dashed across are the plains in southern Saskatchewan, where he was born and grew up. Janum recorded many of his own western swing tunes, such as reels and polkas. His first recordings from the early 1950s were issued under RCA's Bluebird label, and four Ganem LPs were released by RCA Camden. Some of his tunes were published in King Ganem's Jigs and Reels, BMI Canada, 1956. Ganem was one of the original inductees to the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame in 1989. In 1990, he received the Saskatchewan Country Music Association Legend and Legacy Award. King built quite a reputation as a fiddle player. One magazine wrote, This is the hottest fiddle since Nero played while Rome burned. It's reported that in 1956, his fan club had well over a thousand members. Some of his original compositions included Riding the Fiddle, Kylie's Reel, Alberta Stump, and King Ganem Special. King Ganem died in Carlsbad, California on April 26, 1994. As I mentioned earlier, there was only one sample of his show on CBC Radio. So let's have a listen to that. I have no idea who the announcer is. But here's the King Ganem show from May of 1954. Like you to meet King Ganem at his Sons of the West. <laughs> Here, folks, for half an hour now, King Ganem, his sons of the West, and a pretty gal called Ann Gable, are going to play and sing some of the favorite old-time and modern Western swing melodies. So you make yourselves comfortable and join us. And now. Now meet the king of the fiddle himself, King Ganem. (laughs) 
King Gannon's Fraser Valley Breakdown. You know, back in the old days, folks from Fraser Valley to Newfoundland would dance to music like that for hours. There's local barn dances, old-time shindigs, Saturday night frolics, and the like. They still do, but in recent years, they've had to give up some time to the younger generation, who like their old-time music with a dash of swing in it. Western swing, it's called. Like the way King Gannon plays at the Spanish Fandango. talk about the Spanish Fandango when they were going to all the country dances up around Peterborough Way in Ontario here. In fact, until I was old enough to go to some of them dances myself, I used to think that Spanish Fandango was something to eat. (laughs) Well, now, I guess most of you folks know there are many different styles of fiddling in this country now. For instance, there's a style of fiddling that was brought over to Cape Breton and Nova Scotia by the early Scotch settlers. There's another that belonged to the Norwegian and Swedish settlers out Manitoba Way, and so on. Well, King Ganem has mastered all of them. Right now, he's going to demonstrate a southern style. Southern states, that is. <laughs> it's also very popular in Canada. Pickin' cotton. Hmm? Thank you. 
Well, there's King Gannon and a couple of his pals coming this way. It looks to me like they got a tune for us. Yep, by golly, they're right. It's called Grieving My Heart Out for You. Wondering night and day, wondering where you wonder to. Sitting here, grieving my heart out for you. My mind so weary and I'm so sad and blue. Sitting here, grieving my heart out for you. Feeling so lonely, feeling so blue. Sitting here, grieving my heart out for you. Since you've been gone, dear, I don't know what to do. Sitting here, grieving my heart out for you. Folks are as crazy about western swing music as they are down east here. Well, he should know. He played for a good many of those dances in the years that he lived in the oil province. He tells me that it was at one of these dances that he got the idea for this number he calls the Alberta Stump. And that is where the show ended. But we won't leave you hanging off the edge of a cliff. Here's King with... Alberta Stomp. Well, 
This is the CBC TransCanada Network. It's two o'clock, Boulevard Watch Time. There, the show officially has ended. But we still have some time before we move on to our Canadians Abroad segment. So let's hear a song called I Don't Care If Tomorrow Never Comes, featuring a very young Tommy Hunter. I don't care if tomorrow never comes. This world means nothing to me. I've been lonely night and day ever since you went away. So I don't care if tomorrow never comes. If tomorrow never comes And the sun won't ever shine It won't matter to me For since you went away My heart left me that day So I don't care if tomorrow never comes Let's bring this Made in Canada segment to a close with King Ganem's special. Thank you. 
Before we do move on, I want to extend my sincere thanks to a gentleman in Calgary who is an old-time radio friend named Tall Guy, and also a gentleman in San Francisco named Marty for their help in getting a whole bunch of King Ganim music. Thanks again. All right, uh, we'll move on now to our Canadians Abroad segment and to a show that I'm not all that familiar with, believe it or not. Someone sent it to me, and so I thought we would feature it because the cast includes Mary Pickford. Now, she was often known as America's Sweetheart, but she was actually born in Toronto, Ontario. And the other person is Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. And the show is called Stage Struck. So here, from April 18th of 1954, is Stage Struck. of the magic world and people of the stage. Stage Struck now brings you the story of how the stage helped make Hollywood's history possible as two great film studios join us in celebrating their anniversaries. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and its 30th, United Artists and its 35th. Joining us to tell the story will be Mary Pickford, Lionel Barrymore, Walter Pidgeon, Stanley Kramer, Van Johnson, Bert Lahr, Howard Dietz, and Humphrey Bogart. Douglas Fairbanks, Greta Garbo, Sylvia Sidney, Buster Collier Jr., Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, Judy Garland, John Garfield, Lily Palmer, Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn, Barbara Stanwyck, and William Holden. You'll come back to Broadway to be present as the drama critics meet, and you'll hear them as they actually go through the process of selecting the best American play, the best foreign play, and the best musical of 1953-54. 
and then be there when the awards are made. It's all about theater, the people who make it, the people who love it, the people who live it. The world is the stage, the stage is the world of entertainment. And now, here's your host, Mike Wallace. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Stage Struck. medium for mass entertainment the world has ever known, the art that is also an industry, took the theater stage, turned it into a screen, and after drenching it with silver and sprinkling it with stars, brought thrills and drama, comedy and pathos to millions all over the world. It's been said that a drawing of a running boar painted in a cave in Spain over 25,000 years ago is the common ancestor of all motion pictures. Well, stage struck will leave that one for the archaeologists to decide. We feel rather the real ancestor of the motion pictures is the stage. The plays and players, the writers and directors who from the screen's earliest days made it possible. 1954 sees two of the most distinguished motion picture companies celebrating their anniversaries. The 30th of MGM, the 35th of United Artists. Stagestruck pauses now with them to look back through the years and acknowledge the debt they owe to the living theater. The first motion picture was made back in 1889. The first picture telling a story was The Great Train Robbery in 1903. The beginnings were crude. But soon, actors and actresses from the stage here and abroad were attracted to the new medium. Actresses like the young girl who played for Broadway's David Belasco in The Warrens of Virginia, who came to Hollywood to appear in a one-reeler called The Lonely Villa, and soon became America's sweetheart, the beloved Mary Pickford. April 17, 1919, just 35 years ago yesterday, saw the beginning of a new motion picture company. It was called United Artists and was formed by that same Mary Pickford, by Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, and the greatest director of them all, D.W. Griffith. We went on out to Hollywood to talk to Miss Pickford about those early days. Miss Pickford, what made you become a motion picture actress? Money. <laughs> My father passed down when I was four, so it was necessary that we all work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I felt that the Biograph Company was very much beneath my dignity, oh. where the grocery bills had to be paid, so I condescended to apply for work and got work the first day for five dollars. The second day I got ten. On the strength that uh, I was a David Belasco player with the Warrens of Virginia written by Cecil B. DeMille's brother, William, and Cecil was in the, in the play, too. Miss Pickford, how did you and Douglas Fairbanks and Charles Chaplin and D.W. Griffith come to found United Artists? Well, it was uh, publicized that the uh, giants of the industry were getting together to control not alone the salaries of the actors, but to the parts they would play and everything about them. Mm -hmm. So we rebelled. And we formed a company called United Artists. One man said of us, very unflatteringly, that uh, after the corporation was formed, 
that the asylum was now in the hands of the maniacs. <laughs> That's 35 long years ago. And, you know, I'm very proud of United Artists. To me, it's a miniature United States. It's, uh, well, it symbolizes free enterprise, liberty. It was conceived in liberty. And to me, it is the incubator of the industry. Who are some of the people who have grown out of this organization? Well, outside of the four original uh, owners, Gloria Swanson was at one time a member of the company, David uh, Selznick, Samuel Goldwyn, Mr. Walt Disney, Sir Alexander Corda, and uh, later, Daryl Zanuck. That's certainly a very distinguished group. Uh, D.W. Griffith had many innovations to give to motion pictures. Do you recall some of the things that he started that are still used today as standard production techniques? Yes, he was the inventor of the close-up. In fact, the first close-up made at the biograph was of me and a picture called Friends. Lionel Barrymore was in it, and uh, so was Henry Walthall. And he said to Billy Bitzer, the cameraman, one afternoon, he said, Come on, Billy, let's have some fun and move up closer to Mary. Before that, the camera was stationary. In fact, it was fastened down to the floor. And, uh, of course, that was a great innovation. And, uh, well, he, he, he invented the flashback and the um, fade-out and many of the, the tricks of the camera that are being used today. Miss Pickford, of all the pictures you've appeared in, which is your personal favorite? Well, they're all my family, you know. They're like my own children. I think I love Tess the best. And then maybe after Tess, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, and uh, little uh, Judy Abbott and Daddy Longlegs, and the more recent pictures. I, I made four talking pictures. That's not generally known. But of the four, I liked Coquette best. And I'm proud to say they gave me an Oscar. Could anything lure you back into pictures today? Yes, a good story. But I've been looking for one for a long time. Kind of difficult to be grown up Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, you know. And I think people would be disappointed in me if I were to be too sophisticated and too far away from the parts that they knew me in. I'm told that um, in connection with your film, Madam Butterfly, there was a particularly painful experience. Do you remember? Uh, yes, I remember well. I wanted to uh, impress my friend Frances Marion, who was, a, was at that time a newspaper woman, and I was desirous of interesting her in, in uh, writing for me. So I invited her to go to see Madame Butterfly. I was very proud of the picture. And we went way up on Broadway to a little theater you recall Madame Butterfly with that beautiful music there when her heart breaks? Well, here was the big climax. Suddenly, the piano player changed the tune and started playing I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. <laughs> with a loud sob, I jumped up and fled out of the theater, crying audibly. But I'm glad to say that um, Miss Marion wasn't too disappointed in me. We worked together for many happy years, and we still remain very good friends. From the earliest days of the silent pictures, stage stars had brought their talents to the screen. Actors like Sarah Bernhardt, who hoped to avoid the stage actor's personal tragedy of having her art die with her, 
and so made a picture, Queen Elizabeth, saying, this is my one chance for immortality. But if stage actors were needed before sound, the need skyrocketed in 1927, when the jazz singer was made and the public demanded that actors talk as well as move. Two years later, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks made their first talking picture together. It is noteworthy for their performances and for this surprising credit line, The Taming of the Shrew by William Shakespeare, with additional dialogue by Sam Taylor. Here now is Douglas Fairbanks as the gay Petruchio who's come to Padua to find a wife in The Taming of the Shrew. I know that she's an irksome, brawling scold. If that be all, I hear no harm. You would not wed this wild cat. Why came I hither but to that intent? Thanks thou a little din can daunt mine ears. Have I not in my time heard lions roar? Have I not heard the sea puffed up with winds, rage like an angry boar chafed with sweat? Have I not heard great ordnance in the field? and heaven's artillery thunder in the skies. Have I not in pitched battle heard loud larums, neighing steeds, and trumpets clang? And you tell me of a woman's tongue. <laughs> a woman's tongue. <laughs> because of the almost assembly line demands for stories and screenplays, the movies have always looked to the stage for players that would make pictures. They went three centuries back to The Taming of the Shrew, and in 1931 they went 3,000 miles to Broadway and Elmer Rice's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Street Scene. Under the direction of King Vidor, a young actress named Sylvia Sidney found stardom. <laughs> Here now are Sylvia Sidney and Buster Collier, Jr., as they sit on the front stoop in one of that picture's memorable scenes. Sam, there's something I want to ask you. What is it, Rose? I wouldn't dream of asking anyone but you. Do you think it's true what they're saying about my mother? Yes, it is, isn't it? Oh, they were talking here before. I couldn't stand it any longer. Why are we going to living in a place like this? Can I do, Sam? My father means well enough. But he's always sort of making you freeze up. That's the whole trouble, I guess. Mother never had anyone to really love her. I mean, the way things are now, with all the neighbors whispering and sighing. Sometimes I get a feeling... I don't know. Oh, I wish I could help you, Rose. You do help me, Sam. Just for being nice and sympathetic. Over the years, many changes had been made at United Artists. Producers came and went. Names like Joe Skink, Sam Goldwyn, Daryl Zanuck, David Selznick, Alexander Corder. The beloved Douglas Fairbanks died, and so too did David Walk Griffith, the first and foremost genius of film. Chaplin withdrew. Mary Pickford retired, and many expected that United Artists was finished. But there were seven who didn't. Seven, who in 1951 took over United Artists and forced new life into it. One of those seven is Vice President Max Youngstein. We thought that a company based on the principles of United Artists could make a great deal of money. 
It's not an accident, I think, that over the years, United Artists has been the place where a Stanley Kramer got his opportunity to succeed. There are certain things about granting a producer or a director or a writer or a combination complete creative autonomy. This gives you an opportunity to handle pictures that are way off beat, that are so-called non-commercial. High Noon is a great example of that. Here is a Western which everyone said this was practically an art house picture. I think African Queen, with its unusual casting of Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, and a particular type of roles. Paul Gregory, that's a very good example of the way we can function at a studio may not desire to function. This man has created a fairly major revolution in the whole theatrical field, yet this man has never been in the motion picture industry. We start to talk with him, and out of it comes a really strange combination, which we consider, in anticipation, as one of the most exciting ventures we've ever been in. Night of the Hunter is going to be produced by Gregory, first picture. We're looking forward to something as offbeat as anything we've ever handled. But let's not lose sight of the fact that we honestly believe that the so-called non-commercial film is, in very many cases, the very essence of, of a commercial commodity in today's market. Hollywood threw open its doors and all roads from stages all over the world led to its cameras. From Vienna came the lovely Lily Palmer. From the group theater on Broadway, John Garfield. They met in the picture Body and Soul. Here in this scene, Lily Palmer and John Garfield are together finding out about each other as young lovers always do. Can I see you again sometime? What for? Oh, uh, just to see you, anything. Try sometime. Will you? Try. I don't get it, Peg. Why should you want to see me? Why do you want to see me? Because you're beautiful and you're level and you're different. Well, Charlie, you're sort of innocent. Do you know, when I went to school, I learned a poem. Went tiger tiger burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? What symmetry? Well built. The United Artists story has long been one of distinguished producers and productions. But the name of a comparative newcomer in the producer's ranks stands out even in that distinguished list. He's Stanley Kramer, producer of Champion, Home of the Brave, The Men, The Wild One. And we talked with him in the United Artists office here in New York. Mr. Kramer, looking back over your pictures since the beginning of Stanley Kramer Productions, there seems to be a lot of pictures derived from Broadway plays. Well, it's always nice to have a proved uh, piece of material. I think listed among the plays, however, were Home of the Brave, Death of a Salesman, Cyrano de Bergerac, Member of the Wedding, The Happy Time, The Four Poster. You mentioned something about uh, a proved piece of material. Can you elaborate on that? I feel that uh, where a play uh, is successful or shows possibility that it has already a kind of prefabricated market. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, makes it a little easier in the long run. 
You're borrowing from Broadway. Does that uh, pervade your casting practices, too, as to the hiring of writers and directors and so forth? Well, I've been very fortunate in being able to bring into the Hollywood scene many actors, writers, and directors who are from the Broadway theater. I guess that rather than try to enumerate the entire so-called, quote, lurid story, unquote, one might uh, begin and end with a man I think is the beginning and end, uh, Mr. Brando. Marlon came to the West Coast uh, to do The Men as his first motion picture. Mr. Brando was sort of a keynote to the influx of people into my own particular pictures from Broadway. Well, now, in the case of Home of the Brave, what specifically attracted you to that play, especially in the light of the fact that it was uh, an artistic success, but hardly a financial one? Well, Arthur Lawrence wrote, in my opinion, a most powerful play, and a play which just never received the uh, box office reaction, which it deserved. It certainly had very good critical comment. We were very fortunate to have an idea with which Mr. Lawrence had played many years ago, uh, previous to the writing of this play himself. That was uh, to transcribe the central character uh, into a Negro character. I see. To do a problem of the Negro in the situation rather than that of an anti-Semitism problem made it exciting. We had the additional excitement of it being the first film produced on such a subject uh, received as a top drawer box office film from one end of the country to the other. Uh, Mr. Kramer, Max Youngstein mentioned to us that your next production for United Artists is going to be the, uh, the novel by Morton Thompson, Not as a Stranger. We are going to make Not as a Stranger by Mr. Thompson into our first picture for United Artists release. And uh, let me say this, it has the potential to top the Kane Mutiny. May this, since it be competition within our own group or with those associated one with the other, uh, I shall be delighted if we're able to do it. Stanley Kramer, as you heard, is proud of Home of the Brave, and we think with good cause. It opened as a play on December 27, 1945, at the Belasco Theater, and shortly after, playwright... Arthur Lawrence sold it to Stanley Kramer. Hollywood kept the play's theme and peopled it with such actors as Lloyd Bridges, Frank Lovejoy, and James Edwards. Here they are now in one of the picture's climactic scenes. The tension and fear that presses in on them from the surrounding jungle forces out into the open an ugliness that before was kept beneath the surface. We're practically through. That crud. We got plenty of time to pack and get to the beach. Otis and Dillon till nightfall. Gotta say one thing for the Major. He gets the job done. That crud. All right. It's not all right. Well, Major should have known, but none of them ever bothered to find out what a guy's like. What makes him such a crud? Look, the guy's 35, 36. He can't adjust to the Army. So he winds up hating everything and everybody. He's just a civilian in G.I. clothes. So am I. Still stinks. Sure. He stinks from way back. Army only makes him worse. I'm not apologizing for him. I think he stinks, too. But you got to try to understand it. You try to understand him. I haven't got time. I'm too busy trying to understand all this stuff about Negroes. Oh, Marcy, now don't be a... I told you I heard something in the middle of the night once. It was some drunken bum across the alley yelling, throw the dirty niggers out. That was us. But I just drove over and went back to sleep. I was used to it by then. Sure, I was ten. That's old. 
That's old for a picket, anyway. When I was six, my first day in school, some kids got around me, white kids. They said, hey, you, is your father a monkey? I was dumb. I smiled and said no. Well, they wiped that smile right off my face. They beat it off. I had to get beat up a couple of more times before I found out that if you're colored, you stink. You're not like other people. You're not like white people at all. You're alone. You're strange. You're something different. Well, you make us different. What do you want us to do? What do you want us to be? It wasn't until Humphrey Bogart rasped across the screen as the killer Duke Mantee that he emerged as a star. But there was very little of the gangster in Mr. Bogart when we met him the other night in 21. Bogey, you just got in from Italy this morning, did yes, you? Yes, I did, Mike. I finished a picture of the Barefoot Contessa about uh, three weeks ago. You're back in New York for how long? I'll be here until tomorrow night. Then you're not going to get a chance to do much except stop by I'm, here. I'm uh, going to see the Cane Mutiny, old boy, tonight. Yeah, I had lunch with my very good friend Lloyd Nolan, and we're going to compare performances. Do you have any desire, perhaps, when another company of Cane Mutiny is formed, to do uh, Quig in that company? No, I haven't, Mike, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a ham. I don't enjoy acting too much, as much as other people do. If I could be assured that I would be a tremendous sensation in a play which would only run about a week, I might like to do a play. Tell me, when did you leave Broadway? Oh, right after Petrified Forest in 1933, I think it was. Twenty-one years ago. Yeah. Before Petrified Forest, for how long had you played on Broadway? I uh, started on Broadway in 1921, and I played till 1929. Mm -hmm. I was probably the luckiest uh, juvenile that ever played on Broadway. I had seven smash hits in a row, each of which never ran less than a year. I became very arrogant and uh, thought that everything was very easy and that nothing was any trouble. When a part like Queeg comes along, doesn't it uh, act as sort of a... Well, I'll, a I'll spur just, to what ham is in you. Uh, I'll tell you this, that I asked to play the part of Quig two years before it was done. In the movies or... In the movies. In the movies. Yeah, only in the movies. I consider myself a, now a motion picture actor, and uh, therefore I realized that this was uh, uh, quite a part. So I asked to, uh, to play this part, and it worked out pretty well, I think. I hear it's quite a picture. I understand that it is. Now, the, the Duke Mantee thing that you did in Petrified Forest then... You hadn't done a good deal of prior to the Have time. no, I'd done none. And did you resent the fact that Hollywood bought you for that reason? No, I uh, didn't care why Hollywood uh, bought me. As a matter of fact, they, uh, they almost didn't buy me because uh, uh, Hollywood being what it is, they uh, took uh, Leslie, of course, who went with play, you know, Leslie Howard, and they were going to put Eddie Robinson in the part. Uh, so uh, Leslie said, well, I won't play it. I won't work unless Bogart does it with me, which, thank the Lord, he said... That's the reason I got out there. Do you consider yourself a practical workman? Well, I work hard, if that's what you mean. I think that I know what I'm doing, and I always do the very best that I can. In other words, I don't slough it off. I think I have a, quite a record. I've been 35 years in the theater and the movies, and I've never missed a day's work or missed a performance or been late or anything else, if that's what you mean, and I think I know what I'm doing. The highest award an actor can receive in Hollywood is, of course, the Oscar. Bill Holden, whom you'll hear shortly, won it this year. Two years ago, it went to Humphrey Bogart for his wonderful portrayal of the skipper of a one-lunged riverboat by the impressive name of the African Queen. Here are Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn in one of the scenes from African Queen that won for them and for the picture international acclaim.
are in the African Queen, proceeding downriver on a journey to what may lead to their death. You know, Rosie... Yes, Charlie? Well, there ain't no use of us both going to do it. Now that I've had time to study it, I can plainly see it's a one-man job. You couldn't be more right, Charlie, dear. Well, now, Rosie, I'm glad you agree with me. When the time comes, I'll put you off on the east shore. You'll wait there for me while I attend to the Louisa. Certainly not. You're the one to be put ashore. Me? This whole thing was my idea, wasn't it? I'm the logical one to carry it out. Why, Rosie, I'm surprised at you. You're a very sensible woman, as a rule. Now, we won't have any more talk along those lines. Now, look here, Charlie Olnett. I can manage this boat every bit as well as you can, and you know it. Rosie, you're cracked. Didn't I steer going down the rapids? You steer well enough, but you don't know nothing about the engine. Suppose she broke down on you out there. Wouldn't you look foolish? Now, me, I'd just walk back from the tiller and do a thing or two to that old engine. You know, spit on her, kick her in the slacks, and she'd go right to work again. Oh, she knows who's boss, all right. You bet that old engine does. I suppose you're right. Oh, now. That's all settled. I'll dive off a second before the crash and swim over to where you'll be waiting on the east shore and we'll be off to Kenya together. No, I meant it may be necessary for you to come along. Come along? What do you mean? Didn't we just agree this was a one-man job? But you convinced me that it isn't. So now it's settled. We'll go together. Oh, no, we won't. You'll wait for me on the east shore. Who do you think you are ordering me about? I'm the captain, that's who. And I ain't taking you along. You'd only be in my way. I suppose I was in your way going down the rapids. Then what you said to me back there on the river was a lie about how you never could have done it alone and how you'd lost your heart and everything. You liar. Oh, Charlie, they're having our first quarrel. Oh, Rosie, it's only that I just can't bear the thought of... Well, what I mean is, suppose something should happen. Not that anything will, but... Don't you understand, Charlie? I wouldn't want to go on to Kenya without you. Oh, Rosie. All right. It'll be you at the tiller and me at the engine. Just like it was from the start. with the second half of Stage Struck and a further transcription of the story of the stage in films. You'll hear Lionel Barrymore, Walter Pidgeon, Howard Dietz, Bert Lahr, and Van Johnson, Greta Garbo, Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, Judy Garland, Barbara Stanwyck, and William Holden. Tonight on CBS Radio, Jack Benny and all the gang dress their Easter best for their annual comedy stroll down the Easter Parade. Enjoy the Jack Benny Show on its Easter Sunday stroll, a tradition for fun. Remember Jack Benny and company at the Star's Address. Tried and true Amos and Andy are here every Sunday on the CBS Radio Network.
Canadians and Old Time Radio for this time. I hope you'll join me again soon. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again, we'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking.